Hello, and welcome back to Commitment Matters. Happy October, and welcome to Season 6. Well, we're proud to say we were so inspired by the amazing and talented women of our industry, and other industries too, who attended the first annual Women's Leadership Summit over the summer, that we decided to dedicate this season exclusively to some amazing females who lead in our business. So get ready to hear wonderful wisdom from some of the ladies who advocate, trailblaze, and innovate in and around our business. We're kicking off with an especially inspiring woman. Just listen to a few of her accomplishments. She's COO, owner, and founding member of a law firm. She is licensed to practice law in two states and is admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court as well as three United States District Courts. She is active in the Real Estate Section Council of her state's bar. She served on the Board of Governors for the Mortgage Bankers Association in her state. She served on the American Land Title Association Board of Governors. And she led the association admirably during her term as president of Alta. You might remember her as our singing president, which was awesome. She loves cooking, traveling, some college football, music, and the title insurance industry. We have a heavy hitter today, listeners, and you can't miss her no-nonsense grasp of any issue. But please enjoy getting to know the engaging Cynthia Blair. Cynthia, welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Mary. I'm excited to be here. Well, you are a legend You may not think so, but you are a legend in this business. You may not know so, but you are. And we're thrilled to have you on this season. We're featuring female leaders in the title and settlement industry. I love that. Obviously, I love it too. You were at the top of our list because you have been one of a few proud women who have served at the highest level in the American Land Title Association. Fortunately, the number of those female leaders as is growing and has grown. But we have a lot of listeners who aren't currently engaged with Alta or they're kind of, you know, attending but aren't sure about how leadership in the organization might be something that's achievable for them or approachable for them. I'd love it if you would walk our listeners sort of your through our your story about when was the first time you attended an event? What did you think? How did you get more engaged? Was it intimidating? Just give everybody the overview if you would. Sure. I attended my first um, Alta event in 2010. Um, I went to a large agents meeting. I saw an email come through and I thought, hey, that looks kind of interesting. I don't know what that's all about. Maybe I should go check it out. And, you know, if you remember 2010, there was all kind of crazy stuff going on in the industry with the economy. And so I was really kind of wondering whether or not it would be a place where I might diversify my real estate practice, right? I might be able to find some options for, for different kinds of business. And so I decided to go check it out. And I went down to this meeting in New Orleans and met just some fantastic people and, and sort of became, you know, enthralled with everything I saw, uh, Alta. And after that, I think I, began to volunteer 
for committees, which is really, I think, one of the best ways to get involved is, look, you know, there's so many committees um, doing so many different things across the country. And one thing people may think is, oh, I'm scared to be in a committee because my company won't let me travel. Well, it doesn't matter because you can participate on committees and never attend a meeting if you're unable to do so. Uh, Hopefully, that's not the case, but, but you can attend by email. You can participate. We're all doing Zoom these days. Mm-hmm. So there's so many options to participate and um, engage, even if you don't feel that you have an opportunity to attend an in-person meeting right now. So I volunteered for some committees. The next thing I did was I went to the Advocacy Summit in Washington. And I'll tell you, that was really where they hooked me in. The first time I went to an Advocacy Summit I was terrified. I thought it would be so terribly scary Same. to go and talk to people on the Hill. And yeah. you realize then that they're just people and they want to hear from you. Uh, Alta does such a great job. And even in those days did a great job. Now it's just phenomenal, the, the job they do to prepare you and get you ready and set your expectations. So I attended an advocacy summit and was really hooked in at that point. I am with you. I was very intimidated the first time I went to an advocacy summit, although kind of bright-eyed and alert and excited about it too. It was it was sort of both of those feelings at the same time. And then yes, when you do find out you do have a right to be in that room, all those rooms, and then yes, the representatives do want to hear from you. They and they are leaning forward and asking questions. You're not just droning on. That was such a a big surprise and helped sort of further the engagement. I'd like to take you back a little bit if I could to the getting involved on the committees. And the reason I'm That's really top of mind right now is we recently had the Women's Leadership Summit and a lot of the younger career ladies were looking for advice on exactly that. How do I get involved? How do I get a mesh? Because when you're on the outside looking in, we look like kind of a very tight group and it can almost be like, it can feel like high school. How do I break into that? And one of the things that we recommended to these younger career women was find your tribe. So if there's a subgroup working on an issue that you're passionate about, be it marketing, be it education, be it regulatory, nerdy DC stuff, there are those lanes. So do you remember which committee or committees you approached first and how you were received? Was it sit down kid, you don't know anything yet? Or were you welcome to the table? How'd that go? The first one I joined was education, which is a big one. And I think really maybe it had to do with me being involved in my state land title association. And so I had handled education seminars and things like that before. So I thought that would be a good place to start. And it was. As I recall, I was welcomed in with open arms. Ideas were embraced. I don't remember anything feeling like, oh, I'm just a newbie at the table. I might have felt that way in the beginning, but my input was solicited and it was kind of off to the races, really. Well, and titles family everywhere you go, you know, whether you're at your your local association realtors thing and there's your competitors. But at the end of the night, we all kind of end up together, bunched up talking about title stuff or at the state LTA level. And it's the same is true at the national. I mean, these are these are our people. And so you can talk about an appurtenance and it won't be weird. (laughs) (laughs) True. Except these folks will all understand and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, we know yeah, what you're talking Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know those appurtenances so get you if you don't watch out. So you then found your way onto different committees that piqued your interest at different time or what was your progression through there? 
I think I served on education for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I did attend title council because I am a a lawyer in South Carolina. We're one of those weird states where you have to be a lawyer to to do what we do. Mm -hmm. So I did attend some title council meetings, met some phenomenal people on title council. And those are all the people doing all the nerdy claim stuff, but (laughs) really making the way for us here in in the trenches. Met some phenomenal people there. Continued to attend meetings. I think my first Alta One, I think it was in Colorado, in Colorado Springs. I don't even think that I was able to stay the whole time. I think I had to go and be there pretty briefly. But uh-huh. but again, got there probably in a committee meeting, started talking to people. The, the circle has grown for me personally, and I think that's what everybody sees. The circle grows and grows and grows every time you meet somebody else. They have, they're there with their friend. And so then you talk to them and then you meet another, the circle just grows and you kind of talk about it feels maybe like when you're looking from the outside in, like it's a, oh, it's hard to get in, but it's really not, you know, you know, you meet one person and then they're going to be like, Hey, come meet my friend. And Mm -hmm. that's just how it goes. Well, then, so you eventually got to where you were serving on the board for Alta and that then preceded your being president. So let people know what that period of time was like for you. What did you experience? Well, I was asked to be on the executive committee for the agents and abstractors section, which is the sort of the path. And I remember when I got the call to serve on the committee being so surprised because I hadn't been involved in Alta for all that minute, all that much time, you know, maybe a few years, two or three or four years. Mm-hmm. And I was thrilled just because I felt like that was really going to give me a new perspective, introduce me to even more people. I had no idea really that that was even a leadership track or could be a leadership track toward board service. So two or so years later, when I got the call that I was going to be nominated to serve on the board, I was really floored. I just couldn't believe that I had, um, I didn't feel like, I knew that people who'd been there for longer had been doing things longer. So I, I was very humbled and very, very honored. The board service was an experience I will never forget. And I would do it all over in a heartbeat, really, truly. To get that in depth with title all over the country, to get the opportunity to go to all over the country, all up to so many states, to meet so many people, to talk to them. It's just, it's an indelible mark on my life, really, truly on my life. I'll bet. Yeah. Everyone who has served in that role talks about how special it was and how educational and and life-changing and, and truly life-changing. And now you have friends all over the country. I was just telling one of my law partners yesterday, I said, you know, the, the thing about Alta is, I said, if we need somebody in Kansas or something, I know people in Kansas. I, I literally know people in every state or know of them and can easily access them if we have clients who need something there. And I think that's one of the great things that Alta does is it connects you with people doing the same thing you're doing everywhere. And it's a unique experience, I think. Mm-hmm. And you find out how similar we all are to one another. And, and again, there's that family tribe feeling once again. But And also, I, I really wanted you to talk about that because, again, I think people are a little bit intimidated about how would I even get into leadership or do I know if I even want leadership and how inclusive is the group going to be for new people? And your story is the perfect, I think, 
proof that somebody who shows up engaged and isn't afraid to work hard, you will be received well, embraced, and asked to become a leader. It can happen pretty quickly for those that are kind of into it. And it sounds like you got into it right away and and found your way. Absolutely. And I think even if you do see leadership and all as an aspiration, let people know that too. You know, I mean, I think if you're doing things and you're serving on committees, say, hey, I'd love to chair this committee. I'd love to speak at this event. That's where you get noticed, you know, is is offering up uh, to serve in ways where people say, hey, that person shows some leadership qualities. I know, I know, having having gone through all that, that that's really what Alta looks for. They're looking for the people who show up and then sort of have their hands raised that I'll do it. I'll, I'll take it on. I want to do this. And they're going to see that as somebody who they want to put in leadership. I know you love the organization. I love the organization. And the, the work that's being done is is so valuable on behalf of all the industry. You know, they're looking at today and next year and five years from now. And that is so valuable to sort of reinvest in the mental talent pool that is helping to preserve our industry and, and help it thrive. I know there are a lot of issues that are at the fore right now. A couple I wanted to be sure and ask you about. We have a new framework for an updated Alta Best Practices. I don't know if you'd like to talk about any of that, but we do get questions about that. So I wanted to give you a chance to give an overview if you'd like. Sure. And it's out for public comment right now. I am on that executive committee that has been working on the rewrite. There have been so many people who have put in countless hours to rewriting that and reworking it uh, that I just have to give all of them credit for all the tremendous work. And if you look at the Redline version, it's quite a substantial rewrite. A lot of it was wordsmithing, but there's quite a bit of substantive content that was changed. You know, when, when we first began drafting Altus Best Practices in 2000 and, well, I think the first one came out in 2012, Ron didn't exist. Right. You know, all of these things that have come up over the last decade, they didn't exist. And so we needed to make sure that we added that in. And and one of the things that the committee sort of committed to do going forward is is doing this more regularly so that it's not such a, a daunting task. Because this really was this was hours and hours and hours of different little subcommittees getting on the calls and and literally going through every single word to make sure that the words made sense, the definitions to which they referred made sense, that it encompassed everything, that it embodied what we wanted to say, that it wasn't overreaching. I mean, there were so many aspects to doing a rewrite like that. It was uh, was quite large, quite a large task. And I think we want to try to do it in more incremental ways going forward when things come up. So it's not so much of a a daunting task. But like I said, it's a lot of tweaking of definitions in the beginning, um, adding some definitions that we didn't have, removing some definitions of things that really weren't relevant or weren't used anymore. And then each pillar got a look to see 
whether, first of all, whether what those look backs for the definitions were, but also, again, what substantive things we needed to add and making sure that you tied in the background sections of section four to the background check sections of section three and two, because those are all relevant. And we had pieces and parts of those, and we had to make sure that they were all tied together. So after all that, it is now up for public comment. And there is a redline version that you can download, which is most helpful, obviously, for me to see all right, here's what all the changes were. And we are actively asking all the ALTA members to read it, look at it carefully, and give that feedback. There were a couple of things I know the executive committee had a little spirited conversation about in the last calls. And we finally said, let's let this, let's let this out for public comment instead of, since we can't come to a resolution or a conclusion here in the subcommittee, let's then have the public comment and see where the members come down. Yeah. It was time for a second iteration of it. And for for those who maybe are newer to the business that are listening that might not know the history of best practices and why it was put together in the first place and why, depending on what kind of administration we have and what kind of leader we have at the CFPB, they can wax and wane in their criticality. They're, They're always important. Let's give a little 101 for some of the newer career listeners who may be listening of why do we have these best practices anyway? Absolutely. When it started out, it started out with a conversation between Frank Pellegrini and Chris Avenante. And I think there was a concern about whether title was going to remain relevant. Lenders were looking as though they were going to take over the business, or that was a perception, right, had by some. So we wanted to be proactive. The CFPB began. We knew that they were going to be taking a hard look at consumer protection, and we wanted to be proactive in making sure that our industry was looked at by the consumer groups as taking care of the consumer and doing the right thing. And so that was where the idea of best practices came about. And originally, we thought that we would have to be proving to these lenders on a regular basis uh, that that we could do the job and that we were doing the job correctly. And so that was really the basis for the, the drafting of the best practices in the beginning. As you know, we fast forward through the decade, that never really came to fruition like we expected it. And so it morphed more into, okay, it's less about making sure the lender knows you can do the job well and more about managing your business well, and also taking advantage of the opportunity to market to your clients and customers that you do your business well. So it really morphed more into a a true business management tool, which I think looking back, we all say, wow, that really was such a great consequence of it. It made us all stop and take a look at some of the nuances and some of the little tiny things in our businesses that we may have kind of been like, oh, it's, I'm too busy to deal with that. It made us stop and make time to be deal with that and make sure that our processes were set in place and that our people were trained and that we had consistency throughout our processes. And it's made us all the better. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And setting that sort of floor threshold of our best and most professional members, regardless of their size all conduct themselves according to these guidelines. And it has really, I think, helped shape also conversations with regulators who um, a lot of what we do is behind the curtain for reasons. We're partially behind the curtain because we do it well. And so we don't, you know, have a lot of that 
public scrutiny that naturally happens when someone gets something wrong. But also a lot of our regulators, you know, departments of insurance or at the state level are notorious for not understanding the nuances of our business. And I think it's been such a good conversation starter and frankly, bad meme thwarter (laughs) of somebody can have something an idea of, oh, these little title companies, they're on the square downtown, but we don't really know what they do. It's been a good conversation starter and table setter, I think, with regulators. I don't know if you've experienced that as well. No doubt. I think, you know, being able to to actually look at, here's what we do and here's what we audit among ourselves. And you're right, it's scalable. So we're not talking about, oh, this is just for the big guys. This is for everybody, everybody who wants to do it right. And uh, you can take your book um, you can just look at the best practices themselves, and it will, it tells you, here's what we do, and here's how we do it the right way. Well, and another group that you are active in is the Digital Closings Work Group. Can't imagine there's been too much going on in there the past couple of years. You want to catch everybody up? So the Digital Closing Work Group arose out of the Remote Online Notarization Work Group. We started that 2017, I think, is the date. And as the RON platforms began to to come out, and so we were focused on RON, and then we expanded that to encompass all things digital uh, with regard to closing, just since we had, well, there are so many more things, there's uh, IPEN and hybrid and all these other things. So, so we wanted to make sure we weren't leaving something out when we talked about this. So the Digital Closing Committee has a lot to do with RON and then other, other, other technology that, that make the closing process more efficient and digitized for the consumer. Everybody, I think, probably knows that we're at 43. I think it's 43. It was 42 as of large agents, but I think we're maybe at 43 states that allow for the remote online notarization. Uh, we're able to get the Secure Notarization Act passed through the House a few weeks ago. And there's a lot of momentum, I think, in the Senate. We have maybe 12 or 15 co-sponsors in the Senate to try to move that bill forward. Uh, Hopefully everybody saw the letter that Diane Tom wrote along with multiple trade agencies a week or so ago saying, encouraging Congress to pass the Secure Notarization Act. I happen to be in a state where remote online notarization is not permitted. And frankly, I'm chomping at the bit for it. I just think it is a great tool to have in the toolbox. We do a ton of remote transactions and the all the things that we have to do to try to facilitate those, all of the logistics are so difficult, um, particularly if they're out of the country, so very difficult. And I, I just know that this technology will make that a much smoother and experience and and much better experience for the consumer if we can do it that way. And I I, I feel real strongly that those platforms are secure, frankly, a lot more secure than the current process, particularly when it's remote. I mean, I don't know what a Nevada driver's license looks like, but the technology can scan those uh, those driver's licenses and uh, at least make sure that it meets the criteria for the state. So there's all kind of great things going on there. If SECURE does pass, that'll be an immediate recognition of RON in all 50 states. And I think that the remaining states will get on board at that point. If we do get the federal bill passed, do you think that lenders will be more prone to allow and or market and adopt? Yes, absolutely do think that. I think that that's really probably maybe the the one little sticking point behind why it hasn't perhaps progressed 
quite as quickly as, I mean, there's been tons of progression and tons of, of growth in that area, but I think we'll see that exponential growth once uh, secure passes or once we get the all 50 states on board. Then they don't, then they're not concerned about, well, I can't do this in one or two states, which is, you know, a difficult process. Yeah. And what if I accidentally do one in a state that doesn't allow it, then my investor has a problem. And it's just, and so, you know, it's, I'm loving having this conversation with you because we hear a lot from, from agencies who have tooled up for it. They say, so I made this investment. My people are ready. I'm ready. <laughs> and they get frustrated because they say, you know, for years, people said, oh, there's got to be an easy way to do the easier way to do these real estate closings. And they say, yes, we do have that. It is more secure to your point. Here we go. And then everybody says, oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. And so they get very frustrated with that. And they talk about the lack of the demand. But part of it is we've seen the studies where the consumers do want it. They just don't know they can have it because the lenders are not promoting it. The realtors in large part are following the lenders a little bit because there's no point in telling, you know, if you're a realtor, there's no point in telling your buyer, hey, and you don't even have to show up for closing. We can do it digitally. And then the lender says no. So I think that those surveys are falsely indicating low consumer demand. I think it's low consumer awareness and availability as would be promoted by the lenders and realtors. That's my take on it. I wonder if you have a similar or different take. Well, I think that one of the options for those folks who are, have it available and they don't find the lenders are quite as ready in their market is to utilize it as much as possible on cash and seller documents, because then that gets that keeps your staff, you know, up on it, right? They're not sort of thinking, well, six months ago I got trained on this, but I don't remember anything now. Keeps your staff up on it, and then also gets that out in the market. So the seller says to their friend, oh, you're buying a house? Well, I just sold a house the other day and it was the coolest thing. I was able to go online and sign all my documents, you know, like e-sign or like DocuSign kind of thing. And then that person says, wow, I'd love to do that. I wonder if that's an option. So I think it's going to be a word of mouth thing, continued education. And what I would tell people is don't get so frustrated that it wasn't, you know, you got ramped up and there's not a huge rush for it. It's coming. And again, it's still just a toolbox. So there's probably always going to be, or at least in my lifetime, always going to be plenty of people who want to come physically to your office and sit down with you and sign the documents. No problem. It's just for those who either circumstances don't permit or they don't want to come. It's just a tool in the toolbox. So I think it's coming and I would just encourage people to stick with it. And I think they'll have more and more opportunities to utilize that technology going forward. Well, I love your suggestion about use it for the sellers who want it. And you're right, Cynthia, there is no such thing as one size fits all. It's the biggest lie anybody ever came up with. But to offer a menu of services, how would you like to close? That's just going to delight everyone, whether or not they want to come to your office or would rather never know where your office is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like that. That's a, it's a menu. It's a menu of service. It should be a menu. How may we serve you? That's right. <laughs> it's, it's one step short of have it your way. Once you tell us how I want it, we will make it your way. But we can't use that one. Somebody else used that one already. Right, right, right. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, I know that you're active. I think you're on the board with your regional Mortgage Bankers Association. And one thing title agents always want to know is what is on the minds and hearts of lenders. So any light you can shed on that for us right now? So I actually just rolled off of the board of the regional. Um, we have a, a North and South Carolina joint 
Mortgage Bankers Association. So I just rolled off the board of that organization. You know, I think they're talking about a lot of the same things we're talking about. Now, they've got a lot of regulatory things that we in title don't have to worry about, but we were still talking about digital closings. We were still talking about how to best serve the consumer. We were still talking about trying to make it better, faster, stronger, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, more efficient. Those were the kinds of things that we talked about in those meetings. Uh, You know, what I, my capacity as a board member of that organization was as their legislative liaison for South Carolina. And it was, our main focus at the time was trying to get the Ron bill passed in South Carolina. So that was certainly a big focus for them and continues to be. Now, North Carolina has just passed theirs. So we're moving along, making progress. Well, I think people will be happy to know that lenders are not only talking about that, but actively lobbying for it, too. So that tells you that that there is appetite there. They're just needing to know that it's a green light and not having to deal with a patchwork of 43 states and, you know, then the other seven. And what does this mean federally? I mean, we have to remember a lot of the people working in the mortgage world remember notes being challenged and thrown out because they couldn't find the original. Absolutely. So they're they're wary of that. They want to make sure that they don't take a step using some process that, in fact, later on will be proven to be, you know, not, not valid. So you're right. Yeah. All right. Well, we also like to know what's going on in your marketplace, what changes you're seeing to the business, what kind of what you've been through, and if you have any predictions going forward. It's just, you know, everything's so local, and we have listeners from all over the country, and they like to hear what's going on in other markets. And and they can also learn from, you know, what you're experiencing and or expecting and try to keep an eye out for those things in their world, too. So what are you seeing? Well, our market, like I think everyone's market over the last um, 24 to 36 months, was pretty wild and hairy, pretty crazy. Things that I hadn't seen even ever with all of these overbidding tens of thousands of dollars over asking. And that just was not something that our market ever experienced. I know some markets have experienced that in the past, but we never had. So that was unique. Um, properties not even hitting the market before they're already under contract, That all that kind of stuff. And so tremendous volume. Um, our firm has grown both organically and through mergers and acquisitions. Uh, both of those situations were fantastic. As of late, of course, we are seeing a little bit of a slowdown like everybody else. And in our business, I would say not so much. I mean, we're still opening. We keep an eye, very close eye on the numbers of files we open and the numbers of files we close. So I would say that right now there's not been a tremendous slowdown in that business, but we see what our agents are talking about and hear what they're talking about and see. And there's certainly a slowdown in our market. The houses are sitting a little bit longer Builders and other sellers are beginning to offer incentives that we weren't seeing. I'm now starting to see on some of the contracts, seller paid closing costs, which effectively went away for a long time. Um, And home warranties and things like that, that seller paid home warranties, things like that that had just been gone. So we're seeing that. Our individual market, because of the way Columbia, particularly where I'm located, is a, a center state government large university uh, and a large military base. So those things, while I wouldn't go so far as to say insulate us at all, they do give us some, we know that there will always be the need for buy-sell. We're never going to just shut down around here, like some markets might. 
But we will experience, as everybody's experiencing with these rates and the funny thing about rates, I have to say is, okay, so the rates are about 5%. A little dip yesterday, but about 5%. We've got a whole generation of people who think 5% is just the most insane rate they've ever heard of. Right. And my first house I bought, it was 7.5%. And that was a great rate. That was when rates were starting to come down. Yeah, you were um, stealing it at that rate. Yeah. And then, of course, we know people who are older than I, who had rates in the teens. And that was just the way it was. So so we have some transit. And even South Carolina in general, large military population, a lot of good investment. So, and we are seeing, still see a lot of people migrating to South Carolina. Cost of living is lower. Tax base is lower, that kind of thing. So we see a lot of folks coming and weather's better than up north. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Arguably so. I'm not a big snow person. So um, I'd say that it's uh, it's definitely, we, we still see people coming into South Carolina and expect to see that. But these rates and uncertainty of the economy will continue to impact us, I think. And it depends on what you read. Uh, Mary, I'm sure you read a lot of the the publications that come out and you can see one one day that says it's doom and gloom and the housing market is going into a recession and we all need to shutter our doors. No, not really that. I'm, right. I'm being a little But there is some there. doom and gloom being forecast, yeah. Sure. And then you see the others that say, well, but, you know, if you look at these other factors, yes, rates are higher, but they're still low. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, of course, something that people have to keep in mind is still really low rate. And then we're still sh- we still have a shortage. And, you know, the inventory is still not caught up. So they're not seeing it's not like prices are going to take a nosedive anytime soon. So there are other folks who predict that after we see some some of this slowdown in the fall and maybe early part of 2023, that 2023 is looking like it's going to end up being another great year. I personally try to plan for the bad, but hope for the best. That's just my personal philosophy. I'm not a, the sky is falling kind of person, but I do want to keep an eye on that and watch, but I'm really looking more at my individual company numbers to see what decisions we, you know, if we ever had to make any decisions about changes we would make, and that's not even in the cards, but we're looking at our individual numbers less about what the economists across the country say. <laughs> well, and I think it a lot of it too is predicated. Some of us remember in the run-up to the 2008 meltdown, gas prices went up and stayed up for a long time, and, and it ate into a lot of people's discretionary income. Then we had the adjustable rate loans, which we don't have in mass anymore. And I think too, as long as the unemployment figures stay like they are, we shouldn't have a lot of job loss, which those three things together had as much to do, I think, with the implosion. I don't, I'm not an economist, but I think those things had as much to do with the implosion or at least precipitating them than did things being overvalued and, and the bubble. Right. It seems like the housing market a lot of times can outrun these bubbles they form as long as all other factors stay kind of favorable. Gas prices are right now back down. Uh, We still have strong jobs. We don't have a lot of those adjustable rate mortgages all threatening to reset at the same time. So I think I agree with you. Generally, conditions are far more favorable. And Cynthia, let's add to that anybody... It's been hard to even have a conversation with anybody over the last two years because they've been so busy. They've been trying to figure out how to just not die on the field. So I'd hate to go from feeling that, even though this is swinging a little bit and adjusting to, oh, now we all have to resign and get out of the business or fire half our staff. Like we, I think we have some medium ground here, at least for a while. 
Absolutely. And, you know, there were certainly times over the last couple of years where I feared my staff like just burning out and just saying, I can't do this anymore. So now, while things are still busy and it's not like, oh, they're twiddling their thumbs, but they do maybe have a little bit more breathing room. And it also affords us a time. I know my other partners and I are taking advantage of this time to to really focus on our business and how we make it better. When you're running a thousand miles an hour and just trying to, you know, not work till 10 o'clock every night, you don't have time to focus on your business. You do not have time to look at where you can make improvements, where you could make process changes, who needs training and where you can facilitate that training. You don't have time for any of that. And now we're getting a little time to start start making some priorities and saying, okay, here's some things we want to, we want to improve. We want to change. We want to make sure that we're differentiating ourselves in our market and that we continue to do that. And I think that the little bit of breathing room gives you time to do that. Oh, I so agree. I, I, you know, I think back to even a year ago, if I had said, I'm going to charge you $5,000, but in exchange for that $5,000, you're going to get eight hours in a room with your partners to talk strategic things. You'd have taken that in a heartbeat. <laughs> that opportunity's here now, so eight now's the hours, time. Right? <laughs> eight whole hours? Strategic? Oh my gosh. It would have been a dream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people are taking this time to do exactly that same thing. And and there have been things that have changed over the last two or three years. You know, before that, it was the refi boomlet and then it was COVID and all of that. So, you know, it's logically for some companies been three, four, five years since they've been able to step back and think about strategic priorities. And a lot has changed on the ground in that time. And trying to prepare and trying to add in technology and trying to see where processes can be made more efficient. I was literally right before this talking with some of my closing staff and saying, remind you, hey, remind y'all, I I need your feedback on where might we automate another process to try Mm -hmm. to make this better for you. If we give you back, you know, 120 seconds per file, 120 seconds per file doesn't seem like that, but then you add it up over a day and over a week and over a month and a year, then that's a lot of time. I always I kind of have the philosophy of I want the robots or technology or automation to do the things that, that don't require a human brain mm-hmm. and leave the human brain work for the human brains and, and the, the complex communication, things. all those things. That's, yeah. um, and that's one of the things our industry does well at, I think. I completely agree. All right. Any other predictions for the future or things on the horizon that, that you're paying attention to that, that people should be thinking about as well? Alta One in San Diego is going to be great. I'm looking forward to that in the future. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Looking very forward to that. Well, Cynthia, we can't thank you enough for your leadership. You have been such a role model for so many. And I know you join me in inviting people to jump in the water with us. It's fine. It's wonderful. It's some of the best professional development and relationships a person could ever have in their lifetime. I look forward to seeing you at Alta One in San Diego, and I hope we see a lot of our listeners there as well. Thanks so much, Mary. I would uh, concur with everything you said, and, um, and I really appreciate the time being here today. Thank you, Cynthia. I can't wait to see you and everyone next week in San Diego for Alta One. I know it will be a week of learning, engaging, catching up with old friends, and making some new ones too. I hope to see all of you there, And if you see us in the hallway or in our booth, let us know if there's more topics you're interested in. We love it when you send us on a mission to cover the issues you most want to hear. 
Until next time, surprise, it's October. Let's hope that's the only October surprise we get this election year. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that part of life to be surprise-free for a while. I mean, woo. No matter what happens in D.C. or in your local races, we'll stay right here helping you do what you do. Because what you do, it isn't about fiery rhetoric and it doesn't allow for silly theatrics. Because what you do really matters. <laughs>